Greetings to all our friends, brethren, family, and guests around the world. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in 2009, and that symbolizes the coming kingdom of God on this earth. God has given us the gift of the annual festivals and the holy days, and what a wonderful gift it is. Relatively few people on the face of the earth understand God's plan of salvation. Why? Because they are not keeping the annual festivals. The Feast of Tabernacles gives us great meaning. But let's go back a month, or actually a couple weeks from today. On the first day of the seventh month in God's calendar was the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets gives us an understanding of the year leading up to the last trump. And that year is called the Day of the Lord. The seventh trumpet, we know, gives us the good news of the announcement of God's kingdom. If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation 11, verse 15. I'm sure you read this during the Feast of Trumpets. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 11, verse 17. Sorry, Revelation 11, verse 15. That's awesomely good news, and good news that we look forward to. So what happens then at the seventh trumpet? Remember that the resurrection takes place, the resurrection of the saints. And as Paul said, those of us which are alive and remain unto this day will join those who are sleeping and will come up in the resurrection. as 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. But then what happens after the resurrection? We have the seventh trumpet, we have the resurrection. Then what takes place? You might turn over the page here to Revelation, the 19th chapter, and we find more good news. Verse 7 of Revelation 19. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. So the marriage supper takes place after the resurrection, after the seventh trumpet. He goes on to say in verse 8 of Revelation 19, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So we all look forward to the resurrection. We look forward then to the marriage supper with the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Then what happens between the first day of the seventh month and the tenth day of the seventh month? The tenth day of the seventh month in God's calendar is Yom Kippur. It's the day of atonement. And we know that's the day that Satan and his demons are put away. And liberty is proclaimed throughout the land. We'll cover that section a little later in the sermon. And then on the 15th of the seventh month, today, the Feast of Tabernacles begins picturing the 1,000-year reign of Christ and the saints over all the earth. The Feast of Tabernacles gives us vision of tomorrow's world. It pictures the kingdom of God on this earth. 
This feast is one of the pilgrimage feasts where all of the men were required to go up to worship the Lord. Let's turn back to Exodus, the 23rd chapter. You know, we normally read Deuteronomy 16:16 16, 16 when we're talking about the Holy Day offerings on each of the annual festivals, annual Holy Days. But here's another parallel chapter, Exodus 23, and starting with verse 14. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty or empty-handed. God commanded that there would be holy day offerings during his festivals. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field. That, of course, is Pentecost. And the feast of ingathering, the feast of tabernacles, at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord eternal. So God commanded these three pilgrimage festivals where men were required to travel to the feast site and, of course, to worship the Lord where God has set his name. Now notice that Pentecost is called the Feast of Harvest, the first fruits of your labors. And as we've explained on the day of Pentecost, God is showing that he has the first fruits of his plan. The calling of those in this day and age who will be in the first resurrection are the first fruits. But then there's a great fall harvest. It's called here in Exodus 23, the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. This pictures the calling of all humanity that after Christ returns, all the world, will be called to salvation. It'll be the great harvest that will take place at that time. Let's turn now to Exodus 19, just back a couple pages, and we'll see God's calling and purpose for the nation of Israel. Exodus 19. Remember, they're standing before Mount Sinai. They had traveled from the Exodus, through the Exodus, from out of Egypt, and now to Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, starting in verse 5. Moses went up to God, and so God told Moses, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. What an incredible calling the nation of Israel had. If they would obey God, they would be a special treasure to him. He goes on to say, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was an incredible calling. Israel failed to fulfill that calling, and now God is called the Israel of God, spiritual Israel, to fulfill that calling of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel failed, and God has called us now as kings and priests. You know that in Revelation 5 and verse 10, but I encourage you to turn to that scripture and make sure that you have it well marked in your Bible. 
Revelation 5 and verse 10. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That's the calling that God has given you and me. And it's a calling that we rehearse, that we visualize here at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a wonderful calling. The title of the sermon today is Our Calling as Kings, Priests, and Judges. First of all, let's strive to visualize the kingdom as we do every year at the Feast of Tabernacles. We need to look into the future. And the sermons that you'll see and hear throughout this festival will help you to see more clearly what God's kingdom will be like on earth and the way of life that the world will learn to live by. Years ago, there was a chaplain in the United States Senate named uh, Peter Marshall, or And on April 18, 1947, he gave a prayer at the opening of the Senate session. Quote, Give to us clear vision that we may know where to stand and what to stand for. Because unless we stand for something, we shall fall for anything. Oh, God has given us wonderful purpose. He's revealed to us his plan, his purpose, and the way to achieve that purpose. Peter Marshall, in that prayer at the opening session, said in his prayer, Give us clear vision that we may know where to stand and what to stand for, because unless we stand for something, we shall fall for anything. Well, God has given us that clear vision, and we need to rehearse that. We need to remember it. We need to study it even more during this Feast of Tabernacles. Let's turn to Matthew, the 17th chapter, to get one vision of the kingdom. Matthew, the 17th chapter. It's an incredible revelation. Jesus took James, Peter, and John up into a mountain. Traditionally in Israel, it's called Mount Tabor. Uh, I've been there with a television crew years ago. But Matthew 17, verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three, three tabernacles. Now, here is a a vision of the kingdom. Well, of course, Jesus told them that there would be some among them that would not die until they had seen the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, that was in a vision. As he told them later, tell the vision to no one. While he was still speaking, verse 5, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. In the end of verse 9, he said, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So Jesus gave them a vision of the coming kingdom of God, showing Christ in his glory. And who else? Moses and Elijah. We'll come back to that later. But Christ is revealing that two of the great leaders, the spiritual leaders, the saints in tomorrow's world, will be Moses and Elijah. 
And they will be of the royal family, will be of the royal family. They will be our brothers. We'll be able to communicate with them, talk to them, ask them questions. It's certainly going to be a wonderful time. Now, many of you know that Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong did an Elijah-like work. We say that because of the verses at the end of Malachi, in which Elijah was to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest God comes back to curse the earth with destruction. And Mr. Armstrong did that. We are following in that, that foot, those footsteps to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. That we're establishing the way of life that is love and and wonderful spiritual truth within individual families so that we can have healthy, wholesome families and family relationships. But notice in Revelation, the 11th chapter here, we're talking about a vision of the kingdom, and Jesus showed Moses and Elijah. Now, in Revelation, the 11th chapter, we are introduced to the two witnesses who will be witnessing to the world for three and a half years leading up to the return of Christ. We find here in verse uh, 3 of Revelation 11, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, most commentaries say this is obviously a parallel of these two witnesses like Moses and like Elijah. Notice the similarity of uh, verse 5 of the characteristics of Elijah. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven. That's what Elijah did during the kingship of Ahab. And Ahab was the king, one of the wicked kings of Israel. So that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood. What did Moses do? Remember, he turned the Nile to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So when God says that we are going to have the two witnesses, they have the similar characteristics of Moses and Elijah. So we've seen two great leaders who will be in the kingdom of God, ruling with Jesus Christ and the saints. Who else? will be in the kingdom. We need to visualize the coming government of God and who will be there. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, is the chapter of faith. It tells us men and women of faith and how they were faithful. And who do we see in this chapter? We see Moses, of course, in verse 23 of Hebrews 11. Abraham, who obeyed God. In verse 8, verse 9, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents, and we are strangers and pilgrims on the earth, as uh, we're told here in the scriptures, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham had a vision of the kingdom. 
He knew there was going to be a city whose maker and builder is God. And we see, of course, later on in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. And throughout the book of Hebrews, Hebrews the 11th chapter, we find of the prophets of Samson, Gideon, Barak, uh, Jephthah, uh, David, and Samuel, and the prophets here mentioned in verse 32. And, of course, uh, Moses going through the uh, Red Sea, Jacob in verse 21, uh, Joseph in verse 22. So it'll be an awesome and wonderful time when the resurrection takes place and all these leaders will be in the kingdom of God. Let's turn to Romans, the fourth chapter, and see in this particular verse, Romans 4 and verse 13, that Abraham is called heir of the world. So Abraham was a type of God the Father in in Genesis 22 when God called upon him to sacrifice his son, Isaac, who was a type of the Messiah, a type of Jesus. Notice this in Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. But it's telling how he's heir of the world, but notice that he is heir of the world. Of course, Jesus told us in Matthew 5 that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, who else will be in the kingdom of God? You know, so important. The kingdom of God is the government of God coming on earth. It's an organized government. And we are called to be a part of that royal kingdom, a royal family. The kings, priests, and judges, as we'll see. Let's turn on to uh, Matthew, the 19th chapter. Matthew 19, and starting with verse 27. Who will be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel? Good teacher, well, this is from Matthew 19, verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? What will be their responsibilities in the kingdom of God? And Jesus said to them, verse 28 of Matthew 19, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging, yes, will be kings, priests, and judges, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who were first will be last in the last first. So we see that the twelve apostles will be ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel during the millennium. Now who's going to be their boss? Who will be their leader? Turn back to Ezekiel, the 37th chapter. Ezekiel, the 37th chapter. It's very exciting to visualize the kingdom and understand who will be in the hierarchy of God's royal family and in serving as kings and priests and judges. Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, and we read in verse 24, as the Israelites have come back from their captivity, David, my servant, shall be king over them. Ezekiel 37, 
verse 24. David, my servant, will shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And of course, he says back in verse 11 in this vision of the dry bones, this is the whole house of Israel, and they're going to be joined as one family, not two distinct houses as the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but as one stick as it brings out here in verse 17 of Ezekiel 37. So David is going to be king over them. He will be king over the 12 tribes of Israel. What else will take place in the millennium? Ezekiel, the 40th 40th chapter, we'll just take a look here. This is introducing the millennial temple. Now today we have the temple mount. It was the place of Solomon's temple, later destroyed and then uh, rebuilt by those who came out from the uh, captivity, the Judah uh, exiles who came back to Israel or came back to the Holy Land and built the second temple. And then, of course, Herod built onto that temple. Some call it the third temple. And uh, some expect that, yes, maybe even yet, there will be another temple built on the Temple Mount. But this particular temple is the Millennial Temple, and it is built by the Lord. It's called the Lord's Dwelling Place. And uh, this, is, this whole subject is covered from chapters 40 through 48. And so we read here, uh, starting with uh, verse 2 of Ezekiel 40, In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. And so now you begin to see the measurements of the temple, the outer court, Uh, the southern gateway, the gateways of the inner court, uh, verse 28 onward, the chambers for singers and priests in verse 44, and the dimensions of the uh, sanctuary in chapter 41. So it's an exciting time where God even gives the dimensions, the architectural dimensions of the millennial temple. Finally, at the very end of the book of Ezekiel, we find an amazing verse, The last verse of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 48 and verse 35. He's given the measurements of the city, the environs around the temple. And he said, all the way around shall be 18,000 cubits. Now, what will be the name of the city? And the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. Yahweh Shammah. It means Christ, the Messiah, is actually going to live there. That will be the name of the city. Of course, there's New Jerusalem, the city of peace, Jerusalem, that will be coming down from heaven. But the name of the city will be Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. I may have told you before on our tour of Israel with the Feast of Tabernacles with the Brethren in 1998, our tour guide would say Sham. He was speaking Hebrew. Sham, Sham, meaning there, there. So Yahweh Shammah will be the name of the city, Ezekiel 48 and verse 35. 
Also during the time of the millennium, where we've already seen governmental positions that Christ has outlined, what will the environment be like? I know many years ago in a spokesman club, some of the spokesmen were very upset about the uh, deterioration of, of cities. And the one man said, oh, there will not be cities in the millennium. Well, I'm sure he didn't want cities like he had seen in the millennium. But will there be cities in the millennium? Luke 19, of course, gives us the parable of the minas, starting with uh, verse 11. And uh, he says to uh, the one who earned ten minas, verse 17 of Luke 19, And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. So God is going to appoint to some of the saints rulership over cities. In this case, ten cities. The next individual is faithful. And Jesus said to him, Likewise, you also be over five cities. Verse 19 of Luke 19. So yes, there will be cities in the millennium. But they will be cities patterned after a godly manner and godly architecture and recapturing the true values that facilitate beautiful living and abundant living within those cities. Let's turn to Isaiah, the 8th chapter, just to confirm the exciting presence of Christ in that millennial city. Isaiah, the 8th chapter, Isaiah 8, and starting with verse 1. Isaiah 8 and verse 1. Moreover, the Eternal said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with the man's pen concerning Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Eternal said to me, Call his name Meheshalahashbaz. What does that mean? For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. So God sometimes used physical events to portray a prophecy or prophetic events. And when it occurred, people would understand that God had indeed prophesied it. The Eternal also said to me again, spoke to me again, verse 5, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in reason or in Remaliah's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and his glory. And he will go up over all his channels and all of his blank, and he will overflow and pass over. And so God says here that there is coming a time when Assyria will invade the land. But eventually, God will give people the peace and the deliverance from that captivity. And we'll see a little later how that transition is going to take place. We already mentioned the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and, of course, on up until the Feast of Tabernacles, the 15th day of the seventh day, there is going to be a transition. There will be a great second exodus that will take place. Well, let's turn back now to... uh, Revelation, the first chapter, and we've talked about the great leaders of the kingdom. We see that there will be a millennial temple and a millennial city, 
and uh, that the eternal, the Lord, Yahweh Shammah, will be the name of the city, that the Lord will dwell there. Let's turn back now to Revelation 1 and verse 6. Revelation 1 and verse 6. Jesus is uh, the revelator, as you know, and John is writing, and has made us kings and priests to our God, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So John is writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor, or current-day Turkey, and he says in verse 4, Grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn, and there are many others that will yet in the future be born into the kingdom. The ruler over kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And we must always remember that the lamb shed his blood so that we could be cleansed. In fact, as you read through the book of Revelation, I encourage you to underline the word lamb, because Jesus' sacrifice as the lamb will always be remembered. Notice here, and again, he continues in verse 6, "...and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever." So God has called us to be kings and priests. We've already saw that in Revelation 5 and verse 10, but here again is another announcement about it in Revelation 1 and verse 6. Let's turn to First uh, Peter, the second chapter. First Peter, the second chapter. Brethren, do you understand your calling, how important it is, how significant it is, how important you are in God's plan? First Peter, the second chapter, First Peter 2, and starting in verse 4. Breaking in uh, here the thought, the chosen stone and his chosen people. Verse 4, First Peter 2. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Speaking of Christ. You also, as living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house. Notice this, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As Dr. Meredith has often said, we are in training now to be kings and priests. And what should you be doing as a priest in training? to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You need to be practicing that now. Notice in verse 9, more about our calling. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. You might want to underline that phrase, royal priesthood. Why is it royal? Because it's a combination of kingship and priesthood. We are kings and priests. We are a royal priesthood. We're part of God's royal family and a holy nation. So God wants us to be holy, as he said in chapter 1, quoting from Leviticus 11 and verse 44, he said, It is written, Be holy, for I am holy. 
God expects us to have that spiritual mindedness. He wants us to be holy. And holy means, yes, you can have fun that is lasting today and tomorrow and into the future that has no repercussions because they are benefiting the creation of godly character. And they are recapturing true values of life and the way of life that leads to eternal life. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God. Who are you? What are you? Do you remember your identity? Do you know who you are? You are the people of God. You are a holy priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. That is our calling. And we need to emphasize that and remember it during this wonderful Feast of Tabernacles. So that is our calling. Now, what do priests do? Well, a priest, of course, offered sacrifices. We already saw that there is a New Testament application in 2 Peter 1.5 to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Now, let's turn back to Isaiah, the 30th chapter, and perhaps this verse will be mentioned throughout the feast in various sermons because it's one of our major responsibilities in tomorrow's world. A priest taught the law of God. Isaiah, the 30th chapter, and uh, starting in verse 19. Isaiah 30 and verse 19. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very glorious. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. So that will be our calling, part of our responsibilities in tomorrow's world during the millennium, pictured by this Feast of Tabernacles. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk you in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. If you're going to tell people, physical human beings, In the millennium, this is the way, walk you in it. We obviously now must learn that way and be walking in that way and living that way. Tomorrow's world will have a new educational system. And during this Feast of Tabernacles, if you do have Dr. Meredith's book, The World Ahead, What Will It Be Like? I encourage you to read it. Read a few pages every day during the Feast of Tabernacles. Here in uh, the back of the booklet, On page 31, uh, Dr. Meredith has a subhead, Teachers of Joy. Undergirding everything we have described in this booklet is the inspired realization that the family of God will be the ultimate teachers in the millennium. That family will not only include God and Jesus Christ, but also God's spirit-born sons and daughters who are now being trained as teachers for the millennium. For the Bible makes it clear that the priests in ancient Israel were, outside of the home, the primary teachers in that society. And your Bible clearly reveals that true Christians today are called to be priests or teachers for the millennium. So very inspiring.
And then on page 26, true education begins at home. On page 28, respect for teachers. So again, I encourage you during the feast to read the booklet, The World Ahead, What Will It Be Like? Priests do not only teach, but they also intercede. That is, they pray for others. Jesus Christ is our great high priest, and he ever lives to intercede for us. Uh, You might, uh, if you're not familiar with that verse, let's turn to it briefly. Uh, Hebrews, the seventh chapter, verse 25. Very comforting, very inspiring to know that you have a great high priest who knows you, who loves you, and who ever lives to plead your case to intercede for you. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore he, referring to Christ, it's mentioned in verse 22, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 25, Hebrews 7. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to make intercession for you always. Turn back a couple pages to Hebrews 4 and uh, verse 14. Again, speaking of Christ's role as the great high priest, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to suffer. He, he's been in our shoes. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so as Christ knows what it's like, he was tempted in all points like as we are. He knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to experience extreme pain as he did when he was scourged with whips and spat upon and his flesh torn off him just before he was crucified. So he knows what it's like. He sympathizes with us. And as priests in God's coming kingdom, we must sympathize with others as well. He intercedes for us. Now notice our role in our training even now, back in First Timothy, the second chapter, we are supposed to be learning intercessory prayer even now. As a priest, we need to pray for others. First Timothy, the second chapter. Therefore, Paul writes, I exhort first of all that supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. You may not like the president or the king or queen or governor of your nation or state or province, but God says you need to pray for him or her so that we may lead a quiet life in all godliness and in peace. So you need to be praying. I remember times years ago when I had conflicts with a fellow student, and I thought he was very obnoxious. He was not a Christian, I felt, in his conduct and in his communication pattern. But what did Christ tell me to do? He said, pray for those who despitefully use you. Do good to those who persecute you. That's the unconditional love 
of Matthew 5, verses 44 through 48. And you know, I began to have a better attitude before I felt uh, tense, I, I felt conflicted, but after praying for him, God gave me a peace of mind. And you know what? Christ prays for us even when we were sinners. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There are other examples of intercession. But he goes on to say that we are to give prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 2. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the person for whom you're praying may someday come to the knowledge of the truth. And God can reveal that his kindness towards that individual was in part because of your intercessory prayer, your concern for that individual who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But if we're praying for others, we need to have compassion for others. If we've suffered, we can understand what it's like when someone else suffers. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. And here he's telling us that we need to have compassion on our brethren in the church. That we need to have that feeling, that, that care. When others suffer, we need to understand their point of view and what they're experiencing. 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and uh, starting here in verse 25. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. We feel another person's feelings. That is 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it, not get jealous over it, but rejoice. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So when one member suffers, do you suffer with him or her? Do you have that kind of compassion? You know, it's amazing. I won't turn there, but I'll just refer you to uh, Deuteronomy, the ninth chapter, when God said to Moses, Moses, stand back. These are stiff-necked people. Uh, stand aside, and I will make of you, Moses, a great nation. God was going to blot out that whole nation of Israel. But Moses interceded. Moses prayed for the stiff-necked people. He said in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 9, And I fell down before the Lord as at the first, forty days and forty nights I did neither eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins. He's telling the people of Israel, that is before going into the promised land. And of course, Deuteronomy means Deuteronomos, a second law. And this is the time Moses is repeating the message that God gave him so they would remember going into the promised land. Notice verse 19. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Eternal was angry with you to destroy you. But the Eternal listened to me at that time also. And he said, the Lord was very angry with Aaron. And I prayed for Aaron at the same time. Yes, we need to pray for others. 
And in this case, even though God said to Moses, look, I'll make of you a great nation, Moses said, well, what will the people say? They'll say that the Eternal was unable to take Israel into the promised land. Moses even gave God reasons not to destroy Israel. He prayed an intercessory prayer, and God preserved ancient Israel. Of course, they paid the penalty of their sins as time went on. There's another example of intercessory prayer. That's in Genesis, the 18th chapter. And you may be familiar with that. Remember that the Eternal and angels appeared to Abraham. And they were on their way to uh, take a look at what was going on to Sodom. And uh, the Eternal said, Genesis 18 and verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, Abraham is certainly the referred to as the father of the faithful. That's in uh, Romans, the fourth chapter, although uh, he says he's the father of us all, that is, those who have faith. So Abraham is certainly going to have a very high position in the kingdom of God. And, of course, the men turned toward Sodom. It says in verse 22, But Abraham still stood before the Eternal. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Verse 24, Genesis 18. Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were there? And Abraham starts preaching to the Lord, the Eternal. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You would think that lightning would cut out of heaven and destroy Abraham at that point in time. But God is patient and loving with us. And Abraham was interceding. He's saying, look, don't destroy the whole city if there are 50 righteous. And, of course, the Lord said, I will not destroy it. And so he negotiated all the way down to 10 people. And uh, the end of verse 32, the Eternal said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. And, of course, there were not ten righteous people in there, and Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. But Abraham interceded. Moses interceded. Christ intercedes for us, and we are to intercede as priests in intercessory prayer for others. And during the kingdom, we will be identifying with the pain and the suffering of those who come out of the Great Tribulation as physical human beings and come back into the Middle East to the Promised Land. Let's see a little more about that transition period and our role in helping those who come out of there, come out of the Great Tribulation in Isaiah, the 11th chapter. A wonderful chapter, one of the millennial chapters of your Bible. Of course, during the Feast of Tabernacles, you'll want to be reading those millennial chapters and identifying them in your Bible. Do you know some of the millennial chapters? Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 35, Ezekiel 36, um, Micah, the fourth chapter, Zechariah 14. Uh, You should know those. If you don't, write them down. And mark them and read them in your Bible during the Feast of Tabernacles. Isaiah, the 11th chapter, an inspiring millennial verse. But notice, 
starting with verse 11 of Isaiah 11, is a description of the second exodus, that is, those who are in the great tribulation at the beginning of the millennium, who survive the great tribulation and will be rescued and will have to be taught a new way of life. Verse 11, Isaiah 11, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, Pathros and Cush, Elam and Shinar, Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations, and he will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from where? The four corners of the earth. And so this is what will happen at the beginning of the millennium. And then, of course, the amazing reconciliation of nations mentioned here of the three major nations of Assyria, Israel, and Egypt. Verse 16 of Isaiah 11. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria, as it was from Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. And, of course, I was referring to Isaiah 19 and verse 24. We'll come back here to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 19, verse 24. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Eternal of hosts shall bless, saying, listen to this, Verse 25, Isaiah 19, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. These three great peoples, God said, are going to be His, the beginning of the millennium. Now back to the transition period we're discussing here, the second exodus. We see that these people are going to be coming out of their captivity all over the earth. God is going to bring them back to the promised land. Notice in verse 6, The wolf also, Isaiah 11, verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the eternal as the waters cover the sea. What a glorious vision of tomorrow's world. We read through the prophet Isaiah. And, of course, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Reminds us, of course, the video that we've seen, Christian the lion, and the playfulness and the camaraderie between humans and animals. Uh, That will be a glorious time. Turn to Jeremiah, the 16th chapter. Jeremiah 16. So when we think of the millennium, we think of the Feast of Tabernacles, we need to understand there's going to be a transition period. Zechariah 14, as we probably read last night, if uh, Dr. Meredith covered that, which he normally does, we see that Egypt will not come up to the Feast of Tabernacles, and God will cause a plague. That is, he will withhold rain. There will be a, a time of education for nations to understand that if they don't obey God, there are going to be penalties. 
And so there is a transition period. Jeremiah, the 16th chapter. Here we find that God is going to send out fishers and hunters for those who have been hiding, those who have been in the great tribulation and now have survived. And so he says in verse 14, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, that it shall no more be said, The Eternal is who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Eternal is who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. And so he's going to bring them back. Behold, verse 16, I will send for many fishermen, says the Eternal, and they shall fish them. And afterward I will send many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. At first, then first, I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. But God is going to show them kindness and love and forgiveness as they come back to the land. And the Gentiles shall come to you, it says in the verse 19, from the ends of the earth. And so they will also confess But we look forward to that time of that second exodus when God is going to bring back all those who have been in captivity for a long period of time. Now notice how they will react, that is, the exiles coming out of great tribulation, and you and I are going to be able to teach them, comfort them, help them, re-educate them as time goes on. Let's turn now to... uh, Well, let's see. Oh, Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. Ezekiel 36. And again, Ezekiel 34 shows that David will be uh, king over Israel. But here we read Ezekiel 36 before. But let's take a look at um, Ezekiel 36, verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. We've already pioneered that. Those through the time of the preaching of Jesus to repent and to believe in the kingdom. And, of course, even John the Baptist told people to repent and to bring forth fruits fitting for uh, repentance. And so God gives us a new heart, a new spirit, that is in tune with his nature and with his way of life. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. How repentant will they be? Verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. But notice what's going to happen in the millennium. There will be a restoration not only of the spirit of those who are going to be reeducated, but there will be a restoration of the land as well. We've polluted our land, air, and water. But notice in verse 33, 
Thus says the Lord Eternal, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. There'll be major rebuilding projects going on within cities and within the regions and the environs around the cities. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted desolate and the wasted desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And the ruined cities, verse 38, will be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Eternal. So what a wonderful time that will be. And we need to dream. I've tried to encourage teenagers in the living youth camp and in the summer educational program before that to dream of the millennium, to dream of their dream house. The cities are going to be rebuilt and be filled with the flocks of men. On one occasion, I encouraged uh, summer campers to uh, even design their dream house. And one young camper, years ago, age 14, uh, designed this house. It's a double A-frame house. And uh, it really appeals to me as kind of a dream house. There's a waterfall coming down between the houses, and then, of course, there's a, a stream in the dining room with fish in it and a library. And, uh, there are a bird sanctuary and uh, all kinds of beautiful things within this double A-frame house. And then, of course, a swinging bridge up here on the third story uh, between the two A-frames. Uh, on the back was another uh, diagram of... Uh, a plan, a floor plan for a millennial house done by one of the campers envisioning what it might be like to have a dream house in the millennium. So we can dream and we can look forward to our time in the kingdom. Of course, the ultimate house uh, we'll be in will be the new Jerusalem uh, that will come down from God out of heaven. So the cities are going to be rebuilt and on atonement, those who have been in captivity will have liberty announced to them. Well, let's just read that briefly in Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 10. We've seen several scriptures in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah about the second exodus leading up to the beginning of the millennium. And the waste places are going to be built. The uh, sustainable agriculture will be instituted so that people will say, this desolate place is now like the Garden of Eden. What a wonderful transition that will take place. But there is a time when those who are in captivity will understand that they are going to be freed from their slavery. Leviticus, the 25th chapter, and starting with uh, verse 8. Leviticus 25, verse 8, talking about the Jubilee year. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all the land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year. Now listen to this. This is the statement that's on the Liberty Bell in... Philadelphia, 
It was also on one of the United States postage stamps years ago with the reference of Leviticus 25, verse 10. Listen to this. And proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. What a beautiful announcement and a heartwarming, encouraging, comforting announcement that will be made on the Day of Atonement just before, of course, the millennial be- millennium begins on the 15th. That is, the Feast of Tabernacles on the 15th of the seventh month. This will be the tenth day of the seventh month, the Day of Atonement. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. We've briefly seen our calling as kings and priests. We'll need to be compassionate. We'll teach the way of life to the new nations. We'll also, again, intercede as priests for them. And even now, we're learning to intercede in our prayers for others. But there's one other responsibility we'll have. And as I mentioned, the title of the sermon is Our Calling, Kings, Priests, and Judges. So let's look at that third responsibility of judges here briefly. Let's first of all turn to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, a scripture that uh, most of us who uh, first came into the church realized that, you know, we are not the great of the world. There are very few that are of noble birth. And he says in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, and verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Do you see your calling? We're talking about our calling for the millennium pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles as kings, priests, and judges. He goes on to say then in verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. If God can use us as weak, uneducated, as people who don't have noble birth, But we change, we grow in understanding, we grow in spiritual strength, we grow in spiritual knowledge and truth, truth and knowledge and understanding and wisdom that the world does not have because it's wisdom from above. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1, verse 7. So God has given us those gifts that we can be judges, that we can serve in an effective way because God has called the weak of the world. He's called us as babes. reminds me of a, a story years ago about Abraham Lincoln. And this is the story. God has called common people, uh, not mighty, not noble, to understand his plan. Abraham Lincoln, December 23rd, 1863, quote, The president tonight has a dream. He was in a party of plain people, and as it became known who he was, they began to comment on his appearance. One of them said, He is a very common-looking man. The president replied, The Lord prefers common-looking people. That is the reason he makes so many of them. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.26, 
in the NIV translation. It says, Brethren, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And of course, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. I won't turn there, but Luke 10, verse 21. And he said and prayed, I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them unto babes, or NIV, little children, or infants, NRSV. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. As God has not revealed these truths to the great and the mighty, but he has revealed them unto babes, and God rejoices in doing that, giving us that truth. So we have a very high calling. 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, a scripture with which you must be familiar because Dr. Meredith often quotes it. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? We should be able now, brethren, to be able to judge what is right and wrong and what is the basis of that judgment. We'll see. He goes on to say in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 6, And if the world be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So how do we learn to judge? How can we judge the world? Well, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, here in verse 31. Scripture that we emphasize around Passover time but one that should be true for all of us year-round. 1 Corinthians 11th chapter and verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So we need to practice carefulness in judging others. We have to judge ourselves first. Remember Jesus talked about getting the beam out of our own eye before we try to help our brother with the speck in his eye. So we must be able to judge ourselves first. We are called to be kings, priests, and judges. And we have to educate ourselves. And what is the basis for our judgments? Turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We're talking uh, today in our uh, executive lunch, or recently, I should say, about uh, some of our brethren that really are not putting their noses in the Bible. They're not reading their Bibles daily. They're not even aware of the books of the Bible. What? Uh, how many books are there in the Old Testament? How many books are in the New Testament? Can they name the books? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Matthew 4.4 4 and Luke 4.4. 4. And man shall not live by bread only, but by every book of the Bible as well. So I want to encourage you to know the books of the Bible. And if we're to make judgments, we need to have a basis for that judgment. And what is that basis? Psalm 119, starting with verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers and our teenagers and have more spiritual understanding than their math teacher or their science teacher. Why? Because your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients. Yes, greater than the 
more understanding than Socrates and Plato, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. Verse 103, Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. We learn to judge by meditating on God's law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. And, of course, that's how we're going to judge. We have to be careful not to condemn others, as it says in Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, because whatever measure you use to judge, that measure is going to be used against you. I do want to encourage you during this Feast of Tabernacles in our training as kings, priests, and judges to be reading the Living Church News. If you have your copy, the September-October 2009 Living Church News, here are some of the articles. Uh, Dr. Meredith's letter to the brethren, Be Grateful for Jesus Christ's Sacrifice. We previously mentioned that. Are You Ready to Rule? Page 3. Uh, that's what we should be thinking about during the feast. Leadership training in modesty. Yes, we are going to be leaders in tomorrow's world. Are you coming out of this world in order to be a teacher in tomorrow's world? Ambassadors of God's kingdom, page 10. Atonement, becoming sons of light. And page 17, season of hope and glory. So I want to encourage you, brethren, during the feast to read, if you haven't already read some of these articles, even reread some of them. The September-October 2009 Living Church News. Again, it's a part of our training to become kings, priests, and judges. So what is a kingdom? We know the four elements of a kingdom. The world says, oh, the kingdom is within your heart. When Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you, as it says in one of the translations, that should have been translated, the kingdom of God is among you. Jesus was not saying to those carnal Pharisees, the kingdom of God is within you. He called them hypocrites, snakes in the grass, uh, whitewashed sepulchers. The kingdom of God was not in them. The kingdom of God is God's government. It's God's royal family that will be ruling the earth for a thousand years. Kingdom has four elements. That is a ruler, territory, subjects, and laws. And Christ, of course, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can read about that in Revelation 19. And the territory of the kingdom of God is the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth, Matthew 5 and verse 5. And Zechariah 14 shows that all nations shall go up to Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. Micah 4 and verse 1. Let's turn there. Micah, the fourth chapter, again, one of the millennial chapters. Micah 4 and verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Eternal's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Eternal, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Eternal from Jerusalem. Yes, it will be here on earth, as we already saw 
In the last verse of the book of Ezekiel, the city is going to be called Yahweh Shammah. The eternal is there. God will be on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And we will be kings and priests and judges with him, ruling the nations. And then he goes on to say, He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The way to stop war is with God's government and re-education teaching the way to peace. You know, Mr. Herbert Armstrong years ago was given an award by King Leopold. It was one of four watches that was given that were given to um, it was one of four watches that was given to those who contributed most to world peace. This is a publication from Ambassador Foundation, uh, Herbert W. Armstrong, Ambassador for World Peace. In describing the watch that was given to Mr. Herbert Armstrong as one who had contributed to world peace, Mr. Armstrong responded, and I'll read from the page four of this publication. In 1970, His Majesty Leopold III presented the fourth watch to Herbert W. Armstrong. In accepting it, Mr. Armstrong said, quote, I feel it was the highest honor the king could have paid anyone. Whatever contribution to world peace I may be making is not through war, but through education, teaching millions worldwide the way to peace. And brethren, that educational system will continue in tomorrow's world. We are learning to be peacemakers now. We will teach the way to peace. And Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, as it says in Isaiah, the ninth chapter. So we look forward to that time when the kingdom, which has rulers of Christ and the saints, the territory of planet Earth, the subjects are physical human beings who will be ruling and learning throughout the millennium. And then the fourth element of a kingdom is laws. What will be the laws? They will obviously be the Ten Commandments we just read here in Micah, that he shall judge among the nations. And for out of Zion, verse 2, the law shall go forth in the word of the Eternal from Jerusalem. The new covenant is now being pioneered by God's people because he said that he will write his laws on our hearts and on our minds. We're pioneering that way. And in Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, he said he will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And we are pioneering that covenant. As we already saw in Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, that those exiles coming out of the tribulation will have a heart of flesh. God will replace their heart of stone and give them his spirit. So we look forward to that transformed world that will be coming in the future. Let's turn to one more chapter here. There's so many more chapters, but you'll be hearing from them throughout the feast. But Isaiah, the 35th chapter, we find again not only the transformation of human character, but also the transformation of the earth. I already referred to sustainable agriculture, and you'll read more about that in Mr. Meredith's booklet on the world ahead, what will it be like. Isaiah, the 35th chapter, 
And uh, we find here in uh, verse 5, well, verse 1, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Unproductive land will now become fertile and productive. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice. Even with joy and singing, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. And then God will begin massive campaigns for healing. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes." So what a beautiful time it will be, as he says in verse 10, The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's turn to Philippians, the third chapter, Philippians 3. On this first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Let's rejoice in the opportunity to worship God. And let's give thanks to God for His awesome gifts, including the gift of the Feast of Tabernacles, the gift of the festivals, and the gift of the Holy Days. Let's thank God for the revelation and the understanding of His great plan of salvation that He's given us. The world doesn't understand that plan, but God has opened up our minds to that. He's called us to become kings, priests, and judges. God has called us to be his sons and daughters, as it says in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 18. He's called us to be a part of his royal family. But he's giving us a high calling, Philippians 3 and verse 12. Paul writes, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead. And, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles gives us a vision for what is ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Yes, the Apostle Paul said, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, verse 14. So, brethren, let's press toward that calling. Press toward the goal that God has set for us of his kingdom to first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And let's look forward to the time when we can serve all humanity along with Christ, under Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But we must make our calling and election sure. Let this Feast of Tabernacles be an educational tool that you can grow in the grace 
and knowledge of Christ, and that you can be better equipped and better trained to become kings, priests, and judges in God's kingdom. So let's look forward, brethren, to the world ahead, the world tomorrow, the coming kingdom of God, and let's look forward to our fulfilling the calling God has given us, the high calling as kings, priests, and judges.